Well, sometimes preachers talk about getting the glazed look. The glazed look is what preachers see when the congregation finds nothing surprisingly new or glorious in the truth that is being preached. It looks something like that. (laughs) And it even happens when he preaches glorious truths, but truths, you see, that are so familiar to us that we've heard or read so many times that they somehow don't sparkle any longer. They don't see them for the stupendous, surprising, devastating, demanding, ravishing truths that they actually are. The brotherhood of all Christians is just such a truth. If I were to tell you that all Christians are brethren... I probably would not see your jaw dropping. You would not be sitting up in your seat and staring back in wonder and astonishment and say, really? You wouldn't gasp at the idea that other believers in this room were your brothers and sisters. You know that far too well already. There is nothing surprising in that. But you should not think so. I'd like to help you. I'd like to help you gather back just a little bit of the surprise or shock that this should give. I know a man who took one of those mail-away DNA tests only to find out when it came back to his great surprise that his father was not his biological father. And the company even gave him contact information for his actual biological father and his brothers and sisters whom he's now met and developed a relationship with, a whole other family, which he didn't know about, which didn't change anything with the family he grew up with. But what a surprising thing it was for him to learn to his astonishment. He had another family. Now take some of the surprise that you might feel in such a situation and apply it here to the family of God. As today we consider an utterly surprising and astonishing truth as glorious and wonderful as it is difficult to embrace. And what's more, a very controversial truth to boot. Did you know that? Because, you see, in the ancient world, in the world to which Peter wrote this letter, there was no place in the catalog of virtues for brotherly love. They had friendship, of course, And they praised it, but even real friendship, they admitted, was only possible among those of equal rank and station in society. Brotherly kindness, as I have in my translation, or some of you have brotherly affection, is the word, you know, Philadelphia, often translated brotherly love. And that word, so far as we know, was used in the ancient world only for actual family relationships. But then came the radical Christian ethic, which rocked the culture of the first century and created something surprising and wonderful that the world had never seen. Along came Christians claiming that, among themselves... Slaves and masters were dear brothers. 
Men and women, rich and poor, barbarians and Romans alike, were now brethren in the Lord. And the result? The result is that Christians were ridiculed for such a crazy idea. In the mid-second century, for example, the satirist Lucian shook his head at the fanatical sect of Christians and wrote, it's incredible to see the ardor with which the people of that religion help each other in their wants. They spare nothing. Their first legislator has put it into their heads that they are all brothers. Tertullian wrote a defense of Christianity in which he said, quote, the, the, the love at work among us exposes us to many a suspicion. This is weird, they said. Behold, they say, how they love one another. Yea, truly, this must strike them, for they hate each other. And even that we call one another brethren seems to them suspicious. For no other reason that, among them, all expression of kindred are only feigned. And so, because of this strange belief, wild rumors began to circulate about these odd Christians... Uh, Justin Martyr had to write in their defense, he said, we who used to value the acquisition of wealth and, possess, and, and possessions, more than anything, now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people. And pray for our enemies. And so we can be sure, brothers and sisters, that if we practiced our Christian brotherhood as faithfully and as delightfully as it was once practiced, we would probably find ourselves also the objects of suspicion or amazement. The brotherhood of believers was, in the early centuries, an astonishing teaching, strange. There was nothing like this in the ancient world. It was considered fanaticism an absolutely revolutionary principle when it first burst onto the scene of the first century. Perhaps I should mention that it's still controversial even today. I mean, even liberal theology is deeply offended by the brotherhood of Christians. Did you know that? Oh, liberal theology has no objection at all to the idea of brotherhood, or even that it's experienced in the church. However, the idea of Christian brotherhood, the exclusivity of Christian brotherhood offends them deeply. The problem is the exclusive nature of what we read everywhere in the scripture, as John wrote, that as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Oh no, they say, we're all children of God. Well, what's uh, now controversial again, I suppose, uh, one important statement of modern liberal Christianity was in Adolf von Harnack's What is Christianity, published in 1900. I don't recommend it to you, of course, just to say it's a very influential book. And Harnack redefined Christianity, the essence of Christianity, in two propositions, namely the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. That's what he said Christianity is. Well, liberal Christianity, right? The fatherhood of God for all, the brotherhood of all men, the brotherhood of man. And, uh, you know, for his part, John Lennon took that up some years later and sang to us, 
asking us to imagine a liberal paradise where all believe in the brotherhood of man. I think it's very interesting that Lenin asks us to imagine a brotherhood with no common father, which is patently foolish. No reason otherwise to think that, but it's very interesting and a telling admission that John Lennon desires for the world somehow what God actually gives us, his children. A great, wide, far-reaching brotherhood in man. So banish that glazed look. This is an astonishing teaching, highly controversial, offensive to many, but also extraordinarily wonderful. The world knows nothing like it, despite Lenin's pruning. And the more we practice such a true brotherhood, the more the world will truly know that there are only two communities in this world, the household of God and everyone else. Well, coming to the passage before us. In the passage, my translation says brotherly kindness, uh, something that you show. Others of you perhaps, perhaps more accurately have brotherly affection. That is something that we feel. As I've already explained, the word is Philadelphia, usually translated brotherly love. And that is both a commitment to affectionate actions as well as fervent feelings. As Peter wrote in his first letter, uh, in the previous letter to the churches in Asia, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brethren, Love one another deeply from the heart, he says, 122. So this is a wonderful truth to obey. Brotherly love, brotherly kindness, brotherly affection. Now, there's no denying the joys of family. My wife and my children are God's precious gift to me, and it's a very practical and tangible love, as well as a very fervent love that I enjoy with them. When my wife is discouraged, it's my privilege to come alongside and encourage her. When our children are sick, we spare nothing to nurse them back to health. Our relationships must go further than um, uh, just caring for one another. We have practical devotion that is so important. Well, there is another family, is my point, that is of great and eternal value to us and to the Lord. Namely, the family of God. Jesus, for instance, asked at one point, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? As they waited at the door. He stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Not saying, of course, that our biological families aren't important, but only that there is a greater and everlasting family that we have joined as children of God in Christ Jesus. Well, how do you enter that family? Well, how did you enter your natural family? Well, it was in one of two ways for all of you. Either you were born into it or adopted into your family. And did you know that to enter the family of God, you need both? Both must happen. You must be born into it by a kind of spiritual rebirth. As Jesus told Nicodemus that to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. 
which he explains to be born of the spirit, for flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You must be born again. And the Bible also says that we must be adopted into this family. In fact, we read that the lo in love, God has predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, and indeed that God does what no adoptive father can do. He gives us the family feeling right away, the spirit of adoption by which we may cry, Abba, Father. So, okay, nothing revolutionary here, nothing so surprising to you, but when we answer Christ's call to follow him, we also become inseparably connected to one another. In fact, relationship is a large part of your discipleship. Did you know that? The love of the brethren, loving one another. The Bible repeatedly says striking things that you can't follow Christ, at least not properly, without being lovingly joined to your brothers and sisters who are also following Christ. Now, I, I know, admittedly, this causes us difficulty. We find ourselves well, perhaps suddenly thrust into God's family with strange people that we previously didn't know and might not even have much in common with. Uh, but I suppose then again, when it comes to our natural brothers and sisters, we didn't pick them either. Um, it was never up to our tastes. We didn't choose our relatives, but it does present some difficulty in the church, I admit. From a human point of view, we, we still might, uh, even now, think, you know, I, I, I really am just not like these people. I really just don't fit in with them in so many ways. But then we realize that, in fact, we have more in common with these people than with flesh and blood that don't know the Lord. And that's a glorious thing. We find our hearts then drawn out. We, we learn to view God's children as members of our own dear, eternal family, and all kinds of discomforts and prejudices crumble, hearts expand, deep bonds are formed as we realize we do have profound things in common. We even learn a new vocabulary. I mean, just consider what Peter, just in the short chapter three, how, how his language expresses this thing. Verse one, beloved, I write to you the second epistle, verse eight, beloved, don't forget this one thing. Verse 14, beloved, looking forward to these things. Verse 15, our beloved brother, Paul, has written you. Verse 17, beloved, since you know this, beware lest you fall from steadfastness. I mean, that's a lot of love. And I appreciate you guys that say to me, as embarrassing as it is for a man to say to a man, brother, beloved. Well, you don't usually say beloved. I get it. Okay. Um, but we, we need to be... The, Affectionate is the point, and that very language of the letter challenges us to adopt the point of view. It's a shocking thing for us to learn that we have a whole other family, and all the, worlds, all the words in the world can't describe how wonderful and divine that reality is, and how difficult life's calling is now to live out such love. 
So I'd like to connect this verse with the two verses afterward and to give you an encouragement through what I will call extreme truths. Extreme truths, trying to get you again not to take these things for granted, but to realize that we must press on specifically. We must actually, he says, give all diligence to add brotherly love. So let's consider these things briefly. I have three extreme truths for you as the apostle applies these things himself in verses uh, 8, 9, and 10. Three verses, I guess. So extreme truth number one. With brotherly love, we will be productive and fruitful. Extreme truth number one. With brotherly love, we will be productive and fruitful. You get that? Well, directly from verse 8, as Peter gives it to us in a double negative, um, he says if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Turning it around, positively speaking, brotherly kindness will make you both productive and fruitful Christians. And in a variety of ways. In fact, this could be a, this could be a series of sermons but I'll just give you a couple of examples of just how fruitful and productive brotherly love is. A few years back, of all people, the Associated Press did a survey of churches of 39 different denominations in order to identify the most important factor in church growth. You know, that was all the rage. They wanted to learn what caused some churches to grow and others still, if not outright, wither on the vine. Was it worship style, as so many thought, or denomination, or location, or what? Their studies showed that the main factor in a growing church across the board was none of these things. The main factor was an attitude of genuine love among the membership. That brotherly love, surprise, surprise, is a very productive and fruitful thing in a congregation. Now, there's been a lot of research lately, as I've measured, as I mentioned to you before, about the serious health effects of isolation, so much so that uh, the United Kingdom, even before COVID, actually appointed a minister of loneliness. How'd you like that as your job title? What do you do for a living? I'm the minister of loneliness. The minister of loneliness was appointed to deal with what they called a health crisis of loneliness. A health crisis. Uh, one reported, quote, as a rough rule of thumb, if you belong to no groups but decide to join one, you cut your risk of dying over the next year in half. It was for an older population. That study was done. Nevertheless, that's shocking. And well, one well-known preacher took that to his congregation and said, this is why the new motto for our small groups at the church is... Join a group or die. <laughs> Especially in these days of COVID we've had to endure. The only love that many people got each week was the love they experienced in the church, risking their lives perhaps to get it. Or so at least they thought. So we have to get this one right. Um, and so uh, with these uh, interesting anecdotes to begin uh, the best place, of course, to satisfy the human need for loving and giving relationships that we all have 
is, of course, the Bible says right here, to the people to whom God has bound himself, that by the indwelling Holy Spirit of God in each member, that we can find friends that truly stick closer than a brother, that we can find friends who divide sorrows and multiply joys, that those who have the law of Christ so to bear one another's burdens. And uh, we, we are not only together to satisfy such emotional needs, which we have as people created by a triune God, we have a spiritual need put in there by God himself to be joined with the other members of Christ's body. I read of a boy years ago who traveled all the way across town in Chicago every Sunday, a very large city, in order to attend Moody's church. And somebody asked the boy why he went to so much trouble to go to that particular church when he passed so many churches closer to his home. And he replied, because they love a fellow over there. Well, so it is. Not all churches enjoy such productive and fruitful love. But it was the revolutionary brotherly love that has uh, helped to change the world. Indeed, that helped to advance the Christian faith in those early centuries. Did you know that? Um, Jesus didn't say, by, by, this, by your spiritual experiences, all men will, will know that you are my disciples. Not that I'm against spiritual experience. But of course, he said it was by your love. And so it was. In his book, The Rise of Christianity, Rodney Stark writes, quote, to cities filled with homelessness and the impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope, in the biblical sense of that word, by the way, loving deeds, charity as well as hope, to cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services, end quote. And so the early Christian writings where you can read so many of these things that he quotes they are precious and priceless, not just because they teach Christianity and the Christian principles, but because they illustrate so many very ordinary people with extraordinary fruitful love. How blessed a thing it is, how fruitful and productive it is when these things are ours. Um, how helpful it is to each one. ABC News a few years ago was giving a live report in Desert Storm on the eve of battle. And uh, a reporter was interviewing a young soldier asking, how do you think that the battle will go? Are you afraid? That soldier on national television responded, we will do okay. We're well trained. And he began gesturing toward his army buddies of all sorts of ages and colors and races saying, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid because I'm with my family. And the other soldiers then shouted, tell him again. He didn't hear you. The soldier repeated, I'm not afraid because this is my family and we'll take care of each other. And so it is, brothers and sisters, that as we march forward on our mission, we will not be afraid because look around. This is our family and we're going to take care of each other with brotherly love, 
we expect to march onward both faithful and fruitful, productive and fruitful, in the apostles' language. Well, that's an extreme truth number one, that with brotherly love, we will be productive and fruitful. Much more could be said, but I hasten on to extreme truth number two, that without brotherly love, we will be aimless and ignorant. Aimless and ignorant. Verse 9, for he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness, that is, in the ignorant sense, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Humanist psychologist Fritz Perls wrote a terrible prayer that he called the Gestalt Prayer in order to help his patients deal with their relationships. It goes like this. I will do my thing and you do your thing. I am not in the world to live up to your expectations and you are not in the world to live up to mine. You are you and I am I and if by chance we find each other, it's beautiful. If not, it can't be helped. I think that's a summary of what people more and more actually uh, believe is some of the polls about what people wanted a marriage partner are out, right? I've told you these before. Uh, the number one thing that people want now, more than anything else, is somebody that will let them be who they are. Uh, it's amazing. This is not the love that warms the heart or blesses the life. In fact, it's not love at all. And if parents loved their children that way, if husbands and wives loved each other that way, we would be lost in this benighted, aimless, ignorant world as we are increasingly finding ourselves lost because sin has, in Augustine's memorable phrase, curved man in on himself to pray such wicked prayers. No one so thoroughly stuck on himself can truly love another. Real love, which we have received from Christ, from Christ through Christ, that affection and sympathy that commits ourselves to other human beings, that willingness to make profound sacrifices on others' behalf in order to uh, long for happiness and welfare to the point that we are determined to take steps to foster such blessedness. That is something that our world knows too little about, but what we have learned from God himself in Christ. And that love has conquered our sins. And Christians who neglect that love in his language are short-sighted, blind. They have forgotten what Christ has done for them. With, without such brotherly love, we stumble around lost. Truly, we, it's like we are blind, forgetting all that God has done. What will our lives be like? What will our church be like? One man explained it this way. When I was about nine years old, I remember a time when I had to cook my own dinner. In this case, a frozen turkey TV dinner. I was actually pretty excited about this arrangement. But when I went to cook my dinner, I, I couldn't get the oven to heat up. The reason is because I thought you just turned the knob to the temp you want. I didn't realize you also had to turn the other knob to bake or broil. So after waiting five or ten minutes and realizing the oven wasn't heating up, I took the TV dinner out of the cold oven, peeled back the aluminum foil, and began to eat it frozen. I would chip a little ice-covered turkey off with a knife and then suck on it, hoping it would taste like turkey once the ice melted. It didn't. All the ingredients were there, 
but it tasted terrible because it was uncooked and ice cold. Why do I tell you that story? Because a church without love is like that frozen TV dinner, and all you have, you can have all the right ingredients, right teaching, right practice, right evangelism, right worship, right ethics, right service. But if the church doesn't have the warmth of love, it's not going to be anything like God intended it to be. The church won't taste the way that God intended the church to taste. You might as well be eating a frozen TV dinner than to be without brotherly love. Brothers and sisters, my point is if you get this right, then even if other things are not as well organized, even if we don't have all that we should be having and doing here, which we need to do, but if we get this right, we'll get a whole lot of other things right, because love is the fulfillment of the law. And if we don't get this right, if we get this wrong, everything else will be wrong, no matter how well it is carried off. The church will be a cold and a hard place without love for one another if we do not live on the love of Christ and the overflow of what it has meant for us. With brotherly love, point one, we will be productive and fruitful in more ways than I can explain. And without it, we're going to be aimless and ignorant, blind, forgetting how Christ has delivered us from our own sins, especially the sin of lovelessness. Well, extreme truth number three. Extreme truth number three. With brotherly love, we will become assured that God has called and chosen us. With brotherly love, we become assured that God has called and chosen us. From verse 10. Therefore, brethren, note, note, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, listed, you will never stumble, and for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What's the connection between specifically brotherly love and making our calling and election sure? Well, it is God who puts his love into our hearts. Not only love for him, by which we have come to know him as our father, but also love for the brethren. And when we find that love there, when it wasn't there before, it wasn't there naturally, when we find that fellow feeling with our brothers and sisters in Christ, elating our hearts, then we realize that God has done something, that God is at work, and the one who began that work will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's thus making our calling and election sure. We might not naturally be drawn to each other, as I said, but how good the Lord is to expand our hearts. And John explained it this way in his first letter. Everyone who loves the Father loves whomever has been born of him. And again, love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who doesn't love doesn't know God, for God is love. And with several other verses, John reminds us of these truths. So you see, love for God the Father also manifests itself in love for his children, our family. The love that he has begun in us, he also will perfect in us. He is at work, and therefore 
we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as we've studied before. And so he has destined us to spend eternity with each other in the sweetest possible relationship, God commanding us now to begin to live in the light of that eternal reality as the fruit of the Spirit is love. Not just love for you, uh, for, for God, but love for the brethren. So you see, love for the Father is connected to love for his family. Now I, again, come back to the fact that there are difficult cases, no doubt. But you remember, you're also a difficult case. Some of you are especially difficult cases. You remember that there was nothing in you to make you lovable to God. Speaking of election, we believe in unconditional election, which basically says you stink. The glory of God's love is love to the loveless shown that we might lovely be, as the song says. It's Christ dying for the ungodly. It's while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And now even since we believed, we, when we consider our daily sins against God, our thoughtlessness, really how little we've deserved, we can see again and again how great his love remains toward us in Christ. He's given us his love, and this is part of our confidence and assurance that he has called and chosen us. Do you have that confidence? If you could wake up for a second, if do you know, do you know this great God as your God? For if not, then everything in your thinking must shift first at this very point. For our message is not that if you do enough and love enough, that maybe perhaps God will reward you or forgive your many sins. No, the message is, I quote, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And we love because he first loved us. That he came to save his people from their sins in love. Even the sin of loveliness, lovelessness, the sin of a, whole, a hard, cold heart toward him and even toward his children. Do you need a new heart? Is that what you need? For he brings us, I tell you, into a family of love, a fruitful, joyful family of love. And so today, I wish you would understand me, I am not, in all this love talk, presenting a standard that you must live up to. I am presenting to you a Savior you must bow down to. No matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, there is a new family and a new life and a new future of love that you will find in Christ Jesus when you come humbly to God by faith in Him. And when you have known such love kindled in your heart, love toward Him and love toward a new family, then we suddenly begin to realize the family likeness that his love is being perfected in us and we become assured that God has called and chosen the likes of us, point three. Now, before I conclude, I want to make this practical. What is it that hinders brotherly love in the church? What is it that hinders brotherly love? I could list 300 things, but I will at least give you three big ones quickly. Number one, Isolation from others. Isolation from others. Some Christians simply do not make a good use of the Lord's Day. 
and or have very little contact with their brethren during the week. And it's obviously difficult to love people when you are isolated from other people. Proverbs says, a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. 18.1. But that man, I tell you, who isolates himself is suffering the loss and needs to invite over and practice hospitality and get together with brothers. Isolation from others hinders brotherly love. Second, superficiality. Superficiality. Now, I love the fact that after the service, we actually have built into our schedule uh, 30 minutes or so of fellowship time. I, I think it's delightful. We have coffee and snacks. But that is hardly enough time to forge deep, loving, fraternal bonds. And also, frankly, this is just not the best time and place to get into the real nitty-gritty of life and cry on each other's shoulders and open our hearts about what's really going on. Look, we, we want to come here and worship what, and, and to forget about everything even for a while and just praise the Lord. Great. But people do have deep burdens and troubles with which they need help and encouragement. And, and there is not enough time for that here. And if there's never enough time for it, people begin to feel that they have a superficial relationship with their brothers and sisters. They begin to think that even they have to pretend when they come here because they never get their tears out. Christ's love is a redemptive love, and when we love others, we must therefore also lift them up. That requires time outside of this place to get to the matters of the heart, the stuff that really matters. Like I quoted it earlier, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. May God deliver our congregation from any superficiality. And third and finally, unresolved conflict. Can't have isolation, can't have superficiality, and we can't have unresolved conflict. When people have something against even one single brother or sister, and they don't deal with that problem, as they should, it creates a wedge, a root of bitterness that grows up, a wedge in the relationship that separates somebody not only from that person, but can even separate them from the whole church. This has happened twice in this congregation in the last year. When we don't deal with conflict, we are neither loving our brothers nor loving God, I tell you. It is far easier for some people to walk away from the whole church than to try to resolve conflict, I grant you. But the Christian life is not an easy life. It's a good life, not an easy life. Take your pick. And to treasure the members of your own family as they are, you must deal with the issue. I know that there are difficult cases for the third time, but Christ has laid down his life for us, and not because we were so lovable, but because we were, in fact, his enemies in order to reconcile us. It was not the easy way for him, and it will not be the easy way for you. We do not love primarily because we find our brothers always so lovable. We love them for the same reason that the Lord loved us. They are now ours in Christ Jesus. And the gap between you and your brother is nothing compared to the gap between you and a holy God. May Christ's undeserved love fill your heart as you realize that he loves that person in the same way. Pray that the 
Lord would help you love them as he has loved you. To love them with his love. To, pr to resolve your conflicts so much as it depends on you. Beware of isolation from others. Beware of superficiality. And beware of unresolved conflict. Well, in conclusion, <laughs> I was surprised this week to find out there's a real academic journal called the Journal of Happiness Studies. How'd you like to be the editor of the Journal of Happiness Studies? Uh, that publishes the results of research conducted to identify what makes human life happy. When researchers look at what distinguishes very happy people from less happy people, one factor above all the others consistently separates the two groups, and you know what it is by now. Not how much money you have, not your health, not your security, not your attractiveness, not your IQ, not your career success, not whether you keep your hair. Thank the Lord. The thing that consistently distinguishes happy people is the presence of rich, deep, joy-producing, life-changing relationships. If there's anything in life, in human life, that makes you happier, but how much more so to make the lives of you and your brethren here happier. It is to have your heart drawn out to your fellow brethren in Christ and to have theirs to you with eternal love. In my family, I so enjoy the special fellowship we have and rejoice in all the blessings that have come to, well, when they come to any of us, their joy becomes my joy. Their praise or compliment, I feel as if I've been complimented myself somehow because I belong to them and they belong to me. And suppose you came to feel more and more about that in the family of God and that all their happiness and success and all that benefited them brought you happiness just as well and satisfaction and honor to boot. And how much more happiness and honor and satisfaction would you have at this very minute? And if it's work, I told you it wasn't the easy life. It's the good life. It's very good and pleasant work. Brothers, sisters, give all diligence. Be all the more diligent, he repeats, to add to your godliness brotherly kindness, brotherly affection, or in a word, brotherly love. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for such surprising Pra practical, powerful truths. And I pray that indeed by the power of your spirit that you would grant us all to see how we might excel still more, more and more in this high calling of brotherly love and to pursue all the more diligently that which is fruitful and productive, that which is delightful and satisfying to our souls, that bears the family likeness and so assures us that we are truly children of the God of love. We thank you for your love for us, for helping us understand such things that make us pleasing to you and therefore experience more and more joy at being your children. And Lord, if there are some here today who do not know the love of the Savior, how I pray that you would convict their hearts, bring them to see the remedy for their hardness, for their lovelessness, in the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ to take away their sins. So we commit them to you today. We thank you and praise you for all that you are doing among us.